Hillcrest towards Clanton. Um, turn around. I was driving down Clanton. I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. This is at Glover. Subject 1074, electronic ID aware. NCJA 1014. Headquarters to 11 1205. NCJA 1014. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and while trafficking is typically perceived as a law enforcement problem, if unnoticed, its roots can grow deep into a community, causing more widespread problems. Having this Spotlight Month provides opportunities for in-depth information exchanges between law enforcement and subject experts. And of course, the Justice Academy is committed to being a conduit to make that happen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of NCJA 1014. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. Our first episode on human trafficking focused on the work of the North Carolina Human Trafficking Commission, the Academy's involvement in training, and how various entities of the criminal justice community are working together to identify the often difficult existence of human trafficking. In this episode, we're going to examine the complexities of bringing human trafficking cases into the courtroom. And once again, we have assembled a panel of experts who have been there and done that, more specifically in Cumberland County, North Carolina. I'm pleased to welcome Billy West, who is the District Attorney of Cumberland County and a sitting member of the state's Commission on Human Trafficking. Also on today's panel are two of Cumberland's Assistant District Attorneys, Lindsey Lang, and Rob Thompson. I want to welcome all of you and thank you for your time in what I know is going to be a most informative episode. I would like, before we press into it, a little bit of background on each of you. DA West, could we begin with you, your work with the Human Trafficking Commission and your experience as a district attorney in Cumberland County? Uh, sure, Kirk, and uh, thanks for having us. It's an honor to participate uh, in this podcast, and I have been on the commission for about five years, and it's been an honor for me to represent uh, the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys that represents 44 elected district attorneys and over 600 assistant district attorneys in North Carolina on the commission. Like I said, I've done that for about five years. Uh, I've been the elected district attorney for Cumberland County for 10 years since 2011, and for the 10 years prior to that, I was an assistant DA where I had done serious cases to include human trafficking, sexual assault, homicide, and that sort of thing. And, and really, when the human trafficking issue came to light here in Cumberland County uh, was when, unfortunately, five-year-old Shania Day went missing back in 2009. Uh, later, her body was found, and unfortunately, she had been kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered by Mario McNeil. It was a human trafficking sexual type case, one of the first in our community and in our state to get awareness for the fact that some of these things were going on. So I've uh, been prosecuting for about 20 years, been deeply involved with human trafficking um, prosecutions for about 10 years and, and honored to serve on the commission. Thanks, Billy. Next is Cumberland County Assistant DA, Lindsey Lane. Lindsey has been heavily involved in prosecuting some of the human trafficking cases in Cumberland County. So, Lindsey, let's hear a little bit about you. Welcome. Thank you. Well, I'm Lindsey Lane, and as um, you stated, I'm an assistant district attorney in Cumberland County. I work under Mr. West. Um, I was a prosecutor in Tennessee for about um, four years prior to coming to Cumberland County. Um, I've held the role of the prosecutor for human trafficking cases and related sexual exploitation cases for the past three years. Um, when I first began in Mr. West's office, Mr. Thompson approached me and said, hey, I'm working on some human trafficking cases. How do you feel about those kinds of cases? And I think he saw the the light uh, in my eyes. My eyes lit up and I was uh, ready to uh, 
dive in. And so um, I kind of took the reins from Mr. Thompson. He had held that position with our task force for several years. And um, so I'm now assuming that role and I serve as the liaison for our office on our task force and also our um, diversion court. Okay, and welcome once again. And the Mr. Thompson that she referred to also works in the Cumberland County DA's office, and that is Rob Thompson. Rob, welcome to our podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. I have been an assistant DA for about 25 years. I've worked in a number of districts around the state. Billy's uh, nice enough to keep me around right now. And uh, I tried one of the first cases of human trafficking after Shania Davis case. The law changed on human trafficking. I, I tried one of the first ones in the state. I believe it was the first one in the state under the new law. And we, we had a good case. Uh, and Billy grabbed me in the hallway at some point and we started talking about uh, kind of creating a, a human trafficking kind of section of the office where, you know, I was going to specialize in HD cases as part of my load. And then uh, we kind of took it and ran with it uh, with local law enforcement. And then Lindsay took it over and went wonderful places with it. You know, so um, uh, I've, I've tried a couple of cases now. Uh, one, the the case I've already mentioned, Kadeem Kirk, and then uh, I tried a case with Lindsay. She and I went through a, a, a rather big ordeal with the uh, <laughs> Apple White case. It was uh, another human trafficking case that we'll probably be talking about today. Well, again, thank you and welcome for bringing your expertise to us. And if our listeners have not already figured out, we've spent a great deal of time talking about North Carolina in general. And obviously today we're going to focus in on Cumberland County. And for those of you that may be a little geographically impaired, Fayetteville is in Cumberland County. And of course, that brings in a lot of transient folks because of the military bases there. There's folks coming in and out all the time. And Billy, I'd like to start with you and and just kind of talk about about what the military brings as far as human trafficking is concerned, and more specifically to talk about the numbers in Cumberland County, because I'm I'm sure, as we've talked about, this is not just a centralized geographic area, that it stretches from Manio to Murphy in North Carolina, but in Cumberland County, it does kind of bring on a little bit different focus because of the military. It does. Uh, as a Cumberland County resident, uh, you know, we're very Uh, I am and we are as a community very proud of our military, very proud to be the home of the Airborne uh, with with Fort Bragg. uh, And and that certainly leads into a geographic region, which kind of grows out from Fayetteville and Fort Bragg and the surrounding counties. Uh, However, uh, we do have a human trafficking problem here. Uh, that we are combating. And I think one of the reasons is is, is that we do have um, what I would call a target-rich environment for human trafficking. We have a lot of, of young people. We have a lot of young soldiers in our community. And therefore, uh, those that want to benefit and profit off a human trafficking industry uh, will try to uh, create those or bring those to the Fort Bragg and Cumberland County area. Uh, we do have here in Cumberland County probably the highest human trafficking numbers in the state. When I say numbers, I mean crimes that have been charged in the area of human trafficking, uh, promoting prostitution and voluntary servitude, sexual servitude. But there is a reason for that. There's actually a positive in the uh, approximately over 100 cases that we have pending right now. And that is, it's because we focus on that in our community. Uh, We have a human trafficking task force, which involves our law enforcement agencies, particularly our two largest agencies, the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office and the Fayetteville Police Department. And we partner with them at the DA's office as well. Uh, We partner with um, 
NGOs, our non-government organizations that help support uh, human trafficking e- efforts and help us with victims of human trafficking when we come across them in our cases and in our community. So, uh, we, like I said, we have over 100 cases, which is probably the heaviest caseload in the state, even though we're about the fourth largest county in the state. But again, there is a positive thing about that, and that is that's because we're focusing on this and really trying to root out any of it that's occurring in our community. So before we get too much further into this, I think it's always good to kind of go back and remind our listeners about uh, a more clinical definition of human trafficking. Lindsay, I'd like to bring you back to the microphone and just ask you to kind of give us a, a an overview of what human trafficking is, what it might be entailed. We know we commonly think about sex trafficking, but there's also labor trafficking. Uh, as Billy mentioned a little bit of the involuntary servitude, just give us a, a definition of how you folks go about identifying and talking about and what is human trafficking. Sure. Well, as Mr. Thompson mentioned, our laws have changed in North Carolina. You'll find if you research across our country, we're one of the more progressive states in, in our laws. Um, they're very victim-friendly and they help us as prosecutors to really target those um, traffickers and also give some protections to victims. So human trafficking of an adult victim is basically when a person knowingly with the intent recruits or entices or harbors or transports someone and causes them to be placed in something called involuntary servitude. And this can look like labor servitude where they're working without pay. It can also be sexual servitude, which is where they're engaging in commercial sexual act. Um, And it's against their will. And that term is uh, interpreted differently than than what some people may imagine in their mind. Um, It can be through coercion. It can be through fraud. It can be through duress. It can be the use of narcotic. Um, It has a lot of different faces. It's not necessarily someone being physically forced into sexual or or labor servitude. Um, And then for juveniles, it's basically anyone who uh, willfully or in reckless disregard causes a minor, someone under the age of 18, to be held in involuntary servitude. And again, this includes sexual servitude or labor servitude. Um, They are guilty of human trafficking. Uh, in North Carolina, human trafficking of an adult is a C felony, so that can carry approximately 15 years in prison, um, depending on the uh, person charged record. And then human trafficking of a minor, we take very seriously. It is a B2 felony, and that can carry up to approximately 32 years in prison. Rob, human trafficking is a very broad crime. Obviously, in just in the definition that Lindsay gave us, it, it has a lot of roots, and those roots branch out and make more roots. So I'd like to talk about some of the situations that you might encompass in sex trafficking and labor trafficking. And just kind of give us some examples of those that you've run across in your tenure. One good way to explain it, when, when you talk about human trafficking, folks have a lot of um, images that pop in their mind. And, and one of those images is, you know, 12-year-old girls all packed in the back of a van and being taken somewhere And to be sure, that is obviously one way you can traffic another human being. We see it more in Cumberland County as it manifests is more in a a sex trafficking way is forced prostitution. And, you know, forced is a word that could be uh, interpreted many different ways. But um, in, in essence, helping somebody become a prostitute or do the activities of a prostitute and using force in order to do so. And so that comes in a lot of different flavors. You can do that with drugs. You can do that with uh, what amounts to sextortion kind of circumstances. Uh, Hey, I've got pictures of you. And if you don't do all these things that I want you to do, um, then I'm going to give these pictures to your, to your pastor. It, it largely deals with what on the surface would look like prostitution, but in the background is a forced situation. 
uh, is how it really manifests in Cumberland County as far as uh, sex trafficking. Uh, the labor trafficking can happen in a lot of different ways. We've had um, labor trafficking in the form of sex acts um, and in, in kind of a massage situation um, that they're moved around. So it, it kind of encompasses both sex and labor trafficking. We've had uh, for folks that were too young uh, being forced to work in shops to uh, just because they were cheap labor, uh, that kind of thing. So it, it manifests in so many different ways. Um, the law is really designed to be able best it can to encompass all of those things. And, that, and so it you try to boil it down to its uh, to its simplest elements, and it's in essence forced prostitution or forced labor, and provide the victims with some protection and the criminals with some level of punishment. I, I want to ask a a little bit of a sidebar question here. Do you often find human trafficking cases as a result of some? Other criminal offense, may, you know, maybe does it start as domestic violence or some other call for service to law enforcement, and then that it just kind of evolves and opens up the door of human trafficking or labor trafficking? Sure. Yeah. Human trafficking is often complex and it, it can be hidden within other crimes. Um, we do a really good job, at least in our district, uh, and we're trying to reach other law enforcement agencies across the state to train them in ways to kind of recognize that, um, to see it hidden in other crimes. Uh, in 2019, Mr. Thompson and I were working with a victim. Uh, she had been arrested at a local hotel for drug charges. And when the police arrived, they received a report of drug activity. Um, the hotel had complained that they thought that these persons were dealing drugs and perhaps engaging in prostitution out of a certain room. The patrol officer pulled one of the, the persons they located on scene aside and said, uh, hey, you know, you're going to jail. We've caught you for dealing drugs. And she said, look, can I talk to you alone? Um, I'm actually being trafficked by this guy. He's my pimp and he, he's been trafficking me. And the law enforcement officer looked at her and was like, yeah, you know, you're a prostitute. Like, I haven't heard that one before. You're a heroin addict. And so that victim told Mr. Thompson and I, like, that solidified for her everything her trafficker had told her, that she was just a heroin addict, that even if she tried to report him to law enforcement, no one was ever going to believe her. Um, so had that officer been properly trained in saying, hey, this is not just a drug situation, um, that this is actually human trafficking, we probably could have protected that victim and done something about it then. So you'll see our, our units work very closely together, narcotics, gang units, um, our juvenile detectives, uh, when it comes to runaways, they all work very closely together because human trafficking is not something that's always very obvious. It can be something that is disguised as a drug crime, perhaps a juvenile delinquency issue. Um, and you really have to be trained um, and recognize those warning signs to recognize it. Well, I, I want to jump off on that response and thank you for that and, and go back to District Attorney Billy West, who is on the North Carolina Human Trafficking Commission. And obviously, as we spotlighted at the beginning of our program, January is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month. So my question to you is, why is it important for law enforcement and folks outside of the law enforcement arena to learn about the types of human trafficking in detail? And I'd like to talk to you more specifically about that. Yeah, Lindsay great, uh, gave a great example, and Rob has already alluded to it. And I think it's very important that people educate themselves, particularly our law enforcement. Uh, statistics show that human trafficking victims, particularly juvenile human trafficking victims, will have several interactions with law enforcement before it is detected that they are uh, involved in human trafficking in any way. Uh, you got to remember that these victims are not going to want to 
uh, say that. They're ashamed of it. They've been trained. Uh, they've been threatened and coerced not to reveal uh, what they're doing. And so it's not going to be something that they're readily going to offer. So it needs to be detected. So we do a lot of training for our law enforcement. That's one thing that the Human Trafficking Commission is deeply involved in. And then also, as Rob and Lindsay have alluded to, everybody thinks of the traditional human trafficking with violence being the way in which these these victims are held against their will. And that does happen. But we've got drug addiction. We've got homelessness. We have poverty, uh, fear, psychological means. All of these things are being used to hold these people and coerce them against their will. So we really need the public. And that's what January is about, is, is bringing awareness to human trafficking, in particular our law enforcement officers, to get trained on what the signs and signals of human trafficking are. Obviously, as we've heard, there are a lot of different scenarios in human trafficking. And over these next two podcasts, we're going to be discussing a few specific cases. If you could just kind of quickly give us an overview of two to three of those cases that we're going to be talking about. Well, if you don't mind me starting, um, just logically, we had talked about this before. The first case we had um, done in the county after Shania Davis and, and, and the law change was a guy named Kadeem Kirk. He was charged with, in essence, a human trafficking situation involving two 13-year-old girls. Um, he was charged separately. So we tried one and used the other as evidence of uh uh, we call 404B, in essence, doing the same thing with another victim uh, in that situation. So we tried Kadeem Kirk, lasted quite some time, but it was kind of a learning experience. And we, we learned quite a bit. We'll talk about uh, throughout the course of this podcast. Um, a lot of the things that we screwed up with that case, we learned along the way and it set up the ability to do better later. And we then ran into a case uh, with a guy named Robin Applewhite. Uh, I'll toss the ball to Lindsay on this uh, to talk about Robin a little bit. Uh, so in 2019, Mr. Thompson and I had the pleasure of prosecuting State versus Robin Applewhite. Mr. Applewhite was a gentleman who had been well known in the Cumberland County area for um, being involved in prostitution and, and for lack of better terms, pimping girls out. He'd also been a small-time narcotics dealer. That case was really interesting and because it gave you a true insight as to what human trafficking looks like for many different victims. We ended up proceeding and prosecuting with six different victims um, at trial. Each one of them had became involved in commercial sex through a different means. Some were initially addicted to narcotics, and that's how they became involved in the lifestyle. Others were um, you know, stay-at-home moms with children, and they got roped into this lifestyle and be began con being controlled by him. Um, some of the girls he controlled through narcotics. Some he controlled through physical force. Others, uh, actually all of them, he used mental manipulation, which was really interesting um, to show the jury the inside of what these organizations look like. It ended up being a three-week trial. Really interesting. Some of the testimony came out was just eye-opening and gut-wrenching. Um, as far as I understand, it's probably the biggest case that's been tried in North Carolina to this point under the new laws. Um, Mr. Applewhite was convicted. He did receive a minimum of 230 years in prison. Um, at the state level. And uh, the biggest, I think, thing for us, victory for us was the first case where we proceeded uh, against a defendant for restitution. And the judge did award us a $600,000 award in restitution for those victims. So a uh, really interesting case, fascinating trial with some great testimony and some great survival stories. Well, and I think that's a big piece of this whole 
discussion on human trafficking is that you know, there are victims and there are also survivors. And so I'd, I'd kind of like to peel back the onion, Rob, if you don't mind. You did a great job of highlighting a couple of those cases, but I'd, I'd really like to have you explain, and maybe Lindsay can help as well, about how these cases unfold. So going from identification all the way to successful prosecution, are you in a position that you might be able to take one of these cases and and just take it from the moment that it happened till guilty would returned as a verdict? Yes, sir, I can. Kadeem Kirk is is kind of a great example of what you're asking. Kadeem Kirk came to us as we really didn't know what we had at first. The human trafficking, this was this was back in 2013, I believe. The it, it was kind of new to law enforcement. They they weren't really trained uh, to be looking at this kind of stuff yet. And so I had a, a great officer. She generally did sex offense cases, and so she was presented with a 13 year old who had had uh, sex with uh, somebody who was 20, 21 uh, years old. And then this juvenile, as she's going through the story of how the the relationship started, um, started making other disclosures about, well, he had me do these things, and he had me commit, uh, you know, these sex acts for forty dollars here, and he did it on this date, and. And so, you know, the, the officer um, uh, with the sheriff's department, she did a fantastic job, started digging deeper and started asking more questions and going further. And then we sat down and we kind of figured out, all right, what do we have here? And um, we had just done some training with local law enforcement on human trafficking. And so we just kind of crawled through it. Now, we hadn't prosecuted these under the new law yet. And so we were it was kind of a learning experience. So we were at the mercy of the facts as they presented to us. Um, so. What we had as, you know, at the end of the day, factually, was a victim who was uh, given narcotics, um, was uh, brought to a hotel after kind of being groomed like a a sex offender would groom a victim. Uh, You're pretty, you're special, you're not like the other girls, um, that kind of stuff. Took her to a hotel room and got two buddies of his to take her into the the next room and, and dress her up in essence, like a prostitute. Uh, and they, they tried to walk up and down Bragg Boulevard. Um, they didn't have any success in getting any any Johns that moment. And so he started making phone calls, Mr. Kirk did. And, and um, hey, I got a newbie here. Some of, the, some of the lies that he would use, some of the testimony that would come out. Um, and folks were coming over and um, spending money to have uh, either a sex act perform on them or have sex with this you know, 13-year-old girl. Then mom showed up. Um, you know, a mom had been looking for her the whole time. Everybody scattered. And the, the investigation started. So that, that's kind of what we ended up with. And so there's a whole lot of meat to that where you've got sex acts with 30-year-old men. That's one set of charges. You've got um, human trafficking. He gave her cocaine and marijuana during the process. That's another. It's uh, another type charge there. So we we kind of sat down and figured out all these different things that we could charge um, appropriately under the facts that we had, um, what we had evidence for, and we indicted it. Um, Looking back, and I actually did a, a class on this for other prosecutors, uh, the class was not, hey, look at this great job we did. This class was, look at how many ways we could have done better, right? Uh, and so some of the things we look back on, so in that case, we had actually charged conspiracy to commit a statutory rape. Anytime you charge a conspiracy, it's one class lower um, than the original charge as far as just having that 
that heavy hammer of the punishment um, where we could have charged. And now what we do charge is um, we actually charge a statutory rape charge against somebody who sets up this deal. So Kadeem had set up all these guys to have sex with this 13-year-old girl. He wasn't charged in that instance with having sex with them, but he's guilty of it because he um, aided and abetted the process. So he could be charged with statutory rape based on the theory of aiding and abetting. You're actually guilty of the same punishment as a person you're aiding and abetting or acting in concert with as, as a principal. So he's just as guilty as the people actually having sex with these 13-year-olds as if Mr. Kirk had had sex with them himself. And so we could have charged the whole offense where we only charge conspiracies. That's the, one of the many things that we learned, for example. We charged involuntary servitude. We charged um, human trafficking and that kind of I mean, we, we kind of charged all the possibilities. So we go to trial and the testimony came out as uh, we expected, uh, uh, the victim did beautifully, was believable, was sane, was credible, um, and the jury got the case, and they they found the defendant not guilty on all but one of the human trafficking charges. Um, I'm pretty sure found not guilty on all of the uh, of the of the involuntary servitude charges, for example, and. You know, so we talk to jurors after the case when we can. Uh, it's appropriate and, and uh, uh, proper that we do so. So afterwards, we kind of wanted to pick their brains. And the, the, the jury instructions on human trafficking were so complex. And especially on involuntary servitude, it sounded like a, like a, a bar that you, you just couldn't beat. You couldn't get over. And they just had a hard time finding those things. Um, and so we learned from that experience, how much we had to educate the jury during closing argument and other times as to, you know, the different ways you could actually commit these offenses and kind of educate them as to how these get done. That it's, you know, like like we talked about earlier, it's not 12-year-olds in the back of a van that when you hear human trafficking. And we, we took that and later uh, when we tried Applewhite, it, it, was, um, it was very helpful. We spent a great deal of time during closing argument being able to explain how the law worked. We didn't have any issues with, uh, with the jury not understanding the complexity of that law because we just spelled it out for them um, very, very clearly. Our closing arguments were much longer than they, they uh, would have been otherwise, but we, we really spent a lot of time educating them. And we learned that, obviously, from from the Kirk case. The, the heavy hammers, we got a good sentence on Kirk, um, uh, uh, 70, 76 years, I think, was the minimum. Because of the statute of rape charges um, and, or the conspiracy to commit statute of rapes, they carry a pretty heavy hammer. And the, the judge on the bench, uh, who was fantastic, um, ran uh, most of those sentences consecutively. And so um, given this activity, Mr. Kirk, in that case, was only charged with one girl. But during the process, we were talking about um, when we were doing the investigation, this victim had a friend about the same age, and both uh, the investigator and I, we, we kind of smelled that there might be something up with her, too. And so during, while that case was, the first case was almost at trial, we did an interview with this friend of the original victim, and it turned out she had been trafficked in much the same way. Um, and she uh, made all kind of admissions. So we actually had a second series of cases that we were going to try him for. And it, it turned out he just pled guilty to those uh, later on uh, with with our agreement. But we used that second victim in the trial. So he not only did this to one victim, but he did the same thing to a second victim. And that was he used the same techniques. He used a lot of the same things. And 
at the time that they were being trafficked, they didn't know each other. They hadn't become friends yet. And so the, the fact that two different folks were, were giving the same story was very compelling to the jury and allowed us to uh, uh, probably helped in getting the conviction. So it, there was a, the, the main kind of takeaway from that is we learned a lot uh, by screwing things up, obviously, um, uh, being new at it, but we, uh, we adjusted fire and it turned out helpful in the future cases. Well, just a, a couple of questions come off of that. Number one, you talked about the complexity. And I guess as cops, we never really think about the complexity of instructions to a jury. But the one thing that you mentioned was how beautifully the victim testified. And if I recall right, the victim in this case was a juvenile. Is that right? That's correct. She was 13 and she was brave. And, and I, I'm not a guy that that engages in a lot of hyperbole. I, I, I mean exactly what I say. Um, she was fantastic. She was brave and kind. And, you know, the fact that she was 13 at the time these things happened gives her a great deal of grace in, in the mind of a jury, you know, where a 25-year-old should know better, a 13-year-old might not, right? And so, but she came across very credible and it was, um, we were lucky in that respect. Not, not all folks that sit across our desk can come across that way. Um, right. And so she, she was, uh, she was a fantastic witness and did, and, and did beautifully on the witness stand. So you, you tended to highlight, as you call them, the screw-ups just a little bit. Let's talk about the positive side of that. What were some of the elements that you felt really made a difference in obtaining that conviction? Obviously, the testimony of your victim was one, but what were some of the other things that you came away from that as we did a really good job on this? Well, the, the second victim was a big deal. Um, it, it, that's huge. You know, with when if you just have one victim and you have few witnesses to it, um, that's it, that's hard to convince a jury of something that juries so commonly would love to think this kind of stuff doesn't happen. And so they're looking for a way out. They're looking for an explanation that that keeps them in the bubble that they walked in the courtroom with. Right. Is. Uh, hey, if, if she was just making this up because she wanted attention, then, you know, I can still convince myself as a juror that, that these kind of things don't really happen. Right. With a second victim who was telling the same story, but they, they didn't know each other at the time. It's compelling and it's hard for a jury to deny its existence. One other factor um, is I mentioned that Mr. Kirk had a couple of buddies of his go into a room and help her get ready to to be a prostitute, we hunted one of them down and he actually testified. Um, it kind of shocked us uh, that he did. And maybe he he just didn't know how much trouble he could be in. Um, but he sat down in our office. He had he had tremendous regret. He, you know, looking back, he feel like he felt how horrible of an idea that was and what a foolish decision it was. Um, and he had never been told what he was setting her up for, but he kind of knew what she was uh, being set up for. But his testimony was also compelling. So we don't often have somebody from the inside willing to testify about horrible things that they did in, in kind of preparation for this process. We often, as prosecutors, are, are left with an argument that crimes conceived in hell rarely have angels as witnesses. So, um, you know, we, we did have, I'm not going to call any of these folks on the inside angels, but we did have some folks from the inside that were willing to, to testify 
um, just and and he we didn't have, we didn't give him anything. We didn't you know have to make any concessions. He just stepped up and kind of told the truth and unflattering as it was. So that was probably a second thing that tremendously uh, uh, helped in, in adding some credibility to the case. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of NCJA 1014. Human Trafficking Awareness Month continues through the end of January, and we will have one more episode next week as our discussion on human trafficking continues. We'll bring back our panel from the Cumberland County District Attorney's Office, Billy West, and two assistant DAs, Lindsey Lane and Rob Thompson, also from the Cumberland County DA's Office. Until our next NCJA 1014 podcast, please stay safe.